You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, a conversation between audience and artist intended to demystify and celebrate the classical music and opera art form. My name is John Jacob. The Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast is available on Spotify, iTunes and Audio Boom. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the series via your preferred app so you'll get an alert every time a new podcast is published. This podcast is also a mild but pleasurable labour of love for which any support you can provide would be very much appreciated. To contribute to its ongoing development, visit thoroughlygood.me and click on the donate button. I've got to eat after all. Hello. An extended interview with pianist Peter Donahoe features in episode number 29 of the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. Peter and I sat down ostensibly to discuss his new release on Som Label, a collection of Mozart piano sonatas plus the Fantasia in D minor, the first in a series of volumes to be released on Som Label. As with anything unplanned and unscripted, though, our conversation took in a great many other subjects too, including the challenge of interpretation, Richter, and Peter's memories of working in Soviet Russia. Last week, That's right, yeah. with the European Union Chamber Orchestra, yes. soon to be renamed, presumably. Uh, yes, I mean, are they British-based? But the, the administration is in the UK. Right. Uh, it's run by a guy called Ambrose Miller, and I've known Ambrose since about 1978. It's extraordinary. Uh, we've, we've kind of we've not worked together a lot, but we've been together a few times. Uh, I've, I've been aware of his activities. He's been a, a an administrator in the same way as you have in all kinds of different places and now he's running that um, he founded it in fact I think uh, European Union Chamber Orchestra is predominantly Euro- Europeans of course I mean you know the, 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 I think the horns and oboes might be British or it comes and goes anyway I'm not really sure about that but there are people from Poland and oh, all the EU it, it, it's a really interesting experience to work with and they're all um, young professionals and a lot of them are soloists and they just come together for these tours around the UK mainly but because that's where the admin is but they've been to other places as well in fact I think they went to Egypt at some point which wow. um, I'm not completely convinced I'm I'm, um, I'm sorry not to have been with them <laughs> <laughs> If that's um, not what a was their? Um, no, I understand. I understand what you're saying. <laughs> what was their? What was their view on Brexit? Well, in all honesty, we, did, we didn't have much of a conversation. Well, uh, but because you get, you arrived there in a hurry, didn't you? Or your your, your I, transport was quite. Have well, I? Am I no, what it, loads it, of no, what it is? No, no. What what it was was that I left there in a hurry because I did a, a short notice in tune on Radio Three the next day because of the weather somebody else and I don't know who it was but somebody else was unable to come so I, I did it for them instead and that was literally the next day and I, I'd already left home for the Bury St Edmunds concert oh wow before I knew about in tune so I had to kind of scramble around a bit you know 
So you went to London, then you went to Paris. Not that I need to have no, details no, no, of no, your diary. No, no, no. no. <laughs> the, the, in order, it was... It's fine. The order of events was that I left home yes. for Bury St. Edmunds on the train uh-huh. and had the message on the train that, that would I do in June, the next day, as an emergency. I said I would and then realised it was going to involve quite a lot of scrambling yes. around. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, like, like people who are living in London think that everywhere else in the country is very close together. <laughs> We who don't live in London think that everywhere in the south is close together, and it isn't. Yeah. <laughs> no, indeed, indeed. I know. I I grew up in Barrison Edmonds. Oh, did uh, you? So oh, I know right. Barrison Edmonds, and I okay. I occasionally go back there to see my parents, only very occasionally, because I don't, as you know, I don't have a car, and I find it phenomenally difficult to get to from London. Really, even yeah, it though it's basically tricky. Cambridge and then Cambridge to Bury, it just feels like yes. a massive pain in the arse. So that's well, yeah, why I, I, I took I took I the train to um, Liverpool Street via Ipswich. In fact, that was what I was advised to do, and it was it was all right actually, and wow. it ran on time because there was a worry that day that it wouldn't because of the weather. Very much so. Uh, what did you do on in tune, please? Did you play? Did you just yeah, speak? yeah? Uh, well, we always play. I think then that's the, that's the protocol. I I played four small pieces uh, and did an interview with Katie Deerham. Lovely Katie, lovely, lovely Katie. Very professional. It was really excellent, actually. But the, the, the pieces were uh, Tchaikovsky's Humoresque, Tchaikovsky's Ave Passione, which is, I think, the first Radio 3 performance, <laughs> and then um, uh, Mozart's Fantasy in D minor, which is on that CD. Christopher Morley wrote in the album. Yes. It's not an album, it's a release, isn't it? Or do you call it an album? I don't know. I still don't know. No, You're I don't know. You, you don't know, okay. Well, no, we'll just I, go- I mean, album is a strange word because I always thought it was something you got at the end of the year that had all the editions of Beano in it. That's what I thought an album was when I was a kid, and I never understood why an LP was called an album. You read the Beano? Did they oh, yeah. not have, did they well, not have it, it wasn't recent, but yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> and it would be okay if you did read it. Um, in the programme notes, he talks about how uh, the Fantasia, which I hadn't realised, I was going to come and talk to you uh, or ask you about the Fantasia because I remember learning it yeah. um, after I did my grade seven, I think, and yeah. finding it, it felt like the first grown up piece of music I'd ever learned. But Christopher Morley says that everybody does that, apparently, and that everybody hangs about at it. And yet I remember it being quite difficult. Yeah, it is. Well, of course, the, the more popular a piece is, or the more people who, who are listening have played it themselves, the more difficult it becomes. Because, first of all, there's the psychological aspect for, for the performer, but there's also the, the way traditions develop, which you are fighting against. The more something is played, the more warped it becomes by all <laughs> kinds of weird ideas of, of interpretation, which is a word I find quite difficult. Um, and if you go back to the composer's score... Um, I mean, I'm not just thinking of that piece, but popular concertos like the Grieg or the Tchaikovsky One or whatever, 
the difference between reality and the score is quite astonishing sometimes. <laughs> and if you really clear your mind of those things, which is quite hard to do, and just go back to what the composer left us, it's absolutely uh, what is hard about. Experience. What is hard I mean, about? I'm just just finished though. That. Oh. So that that's why, in my early professional life, 20th century repertoire, particularly brand new music, was for me much easier. Because, because there's no you baggage. don't have that, that stuff hanging around. Right. You get people saying, oh, well, you can play anything you like, and nobody would know the difference, which is actually untrue. It's completely untrue, because you, you can't play anything you like unless you're an improviser without it sounding unconvincing. You have to play just as faithfully as you do when you're playing Schumann. You know, there's no, there's no real difference. It's just that you haven't got this bank of other performances that people compare it with. Uh, and that is a big problem with popular repertoire, and the Mozart fantasy certainly is. I, I would say that may, maybe more than any other piece, it, it's, it's a piece most people at some point, if they're into piano, have learned. Mm. It's very concise as well. Yeah. I remember it, but you know, when I, when I recall learning it, I remember it feeling as though it went on for a long, long time, possibly because it was the longest piece mm. or the most intense piece that I had learned up until that point. But now I listen to it. it in, in full performances, there's an enormous amount packed into it. Well, yes, if you compare that fantasy with the sonatas, it's, it's actually on the surface, at any rate, much more dramatic. Uh, and it's quite obviously related to a, some kind of operatic, well, almost art is actually to some degree, but this is, this is particularly dramatic. It's, Don Giovanni is very much in, there, in that piece. Um, and yes, as you say, it's very concise, it's, it's really very short. It's technically, I wouldn't say um, simple by any means, but it's not in that way that some, some of his other music is complicated. Because, you know, Mozart is generally technically very hard, I think. Um, but towards the end, it gets a little bit tricky. But I mean, basically, it's, it's a simpler piece for the fingers than most of his writing. Um, but it's emotionally enormous and stylistically tricky. earlier on that you found uh, the word interpretation hard you had a thing about the yeah. word interpretation what well, if, if you... it weren't on audio I would have done inverted commas okay well that's fine well I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> annotate that then you've done inverted commas what, what is it that you find what's hard about that word for you um, well I think that it's used as a coverall for all manner of distortion and there is a very big difference between having a personality and responding in your own honest way to the score and being faithful to it and imposing some kind of um, false version of it that sounds more like you than it does like the composer. And that sometimes, in fact very often in romantic repertoire in particular, involves altering the score. It involves ignoring pumosos and dynamics and all sorts of other things. Notation is limited, but it's not to be contradicted. And there's a very big difference between you know, doing your own version of it 
and actually adding to what's been written. Do you know when other people have done that? Oh, immediately. How? Particularly if I play it myself, yes. But if, if it's a piece uh, that I don't know, then uh, or if I don't play, rather, I should say, um, yeah, you can, hear, you can hear the personality of the particular artist coming through in a way that it seems like an imposition. When, when, a, when a performance sounds more like... I'm not going to name anyone. No, I don't want you to. <laughs> that would be really crass. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to avoid doing it. Um, but, but when I suppose well, I'm, unless... I'm trying to get you to, 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 to hook into or to guide me as to how to listen out for that. That's, that's really what I'm... Well, of course, if you know the score, then that's it's, it's most okay. obvious. Yeah. But when you start list, listening to a piece of Mozart, Bach, or one of the great composers, particularly of the earlier great composers, as opposed to the Romantic era, uh, and you start to think that sounds more like whoever's playing it than it does like Beethoven then you've got a problem and I think one of the most obvious and simplest results in that of, um, of that tradition of having your into you know your bark or your Beethoven mm. as opposed to theirs um, is when you have um, a rubato that is generic I talk quite a lot when I do a bit of teaching uh, which is I usually do in class form um, generic rubato is a big problem because it's your rubato it's not the composer's so when you talk about generic rubato you mean that there is, there's a phrase in the music and you as the instrumentalist have just decided for without any notation to just put a rubato yeah. in there yes okay. and that rubato is yours yes and if it was Poulenc it would be the same rubato as you would put into Beethoven yes or yeah, any oh, other yeah, composer okay, okay. so all your performances start to sound like you and not like all okay. the different composers, which and they've all got different, wildly different styles. Most recitals have, not all, but most have a program that requires you to have an, a different approach for every composer. And if you're going to do that, it's not going to be a different approach. No, it's just that you're you're making an assumption about a melodic phrase hmm. and applying what you think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I guess. Yeah. I, like, yeah, I, I, well, I mean, the alternative. Yeah which is the one I try to adopt, is making everything as expressive as possible through colours and rhythms, rhythms being accurate, I should say, the colour and the dynamic range of what you do. Now, now in the modern world, i found that dynamic range in pianists is very limited. One of the reasons may be because uh, they're encouraged to choose different pianos for different repertoire, which I think is an absurdity. Um, a, a really great piano is fantastic for any composer. And, and so the connection is stronger between the pianist and the keyboard than the or, uh, the pianist and the instrument rather than the instrument and the composer. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. Yes, yes. Um, so if if you have a program that starts with well, just completely arbitrarily, but bar. And then you go on to Mozart or Haydn, and then you have a romantic work, and maybe Ravel, and you know, you should be able to do that on the same piano, surely. And mm. it should sound different in each case. Mm. That's because you are playing it differently, not because the piano has been changed. And you know, that's that's to me very obviously part of what we have to do. I, I always because I don't know whether you know, but I, I did a lot in the Soviet Union when I was first a prize winner at the. Tchaikovsky competition was in the early 80s right through to the, the big political change I was there every few weeks essentially and um, I heard Richter play on the most god awful piano 
I only know it's a good awful piano because I had to play it the next day. Because it didn't sound like a good awful piano. It sounded incredibly good. <laughs> oh, that must have been a, that must have been a horrible moment. <laughs> it was a bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, t- talk but about it sounded so good yesterday. <laughs> yes, what's, what's he done to it? Yeah. But he just made every piano sound amazing. Wow. I mean, of course, if there are missing strings or something, that's another yeah. Or if it's out of tune. But uh, assuming... Was it a galling moment, though? Yes, <laughs> it was. I mean, it was that, where, it was that, I, that makes it sound as though I'm being dismissive of your play, but but I mean, no, you no, said no. no, no, I don't mean. I, I, I didn't take it that way. I, of course, I thought, how can I do what he did? Mm. And I've been thinking about it ever since. Mm. And it's true. You don't need a great piano to produce a great performance. You don't need a great acoustic. You don't need anything to be great except your own. Oh, the great music and your own humility. I suppose this was a mess. What did he do? Do you think to transform that piano? Well, he had, as a personality, Richter had an unbelievably self-confident um, determination about the way he wanted the music to go, and he didn't give a shit about what anybody else thought about it. It was just completely, totally self-confident. Not arrogance, which is something else, and very easily confused. Uh, but, but first of all, he. He was very much part of the Soviet system, and he knew that he was a Soviet hero. He'd had a very bad history with the, with the system itself, so quite how he maintained it, I don't know. But, and he loved the people he played to, particularly in Russia. Uh, and I know that feeling, because the Russian uh, audiences are unbelievable. Just quite beyond compare. In what way? Well, from the point of view of their involvement in the music, their... Um, determination of, of uh, um, to think the best of you to have a wonderful <laughs> welcome there the most incredible experience really to play there and it always was Soviet or otherwise it's nothing to do with that it's, it's the nature of the people and the, the nature of those people is contradicted by the way this is a bit of a tangent but no, 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 the, no, no, the no, nature of the people in Russia particularly the provincial uh, audiences um, are in direct contrast to the kind of Russians we meet in this country, yes, or anywhere else. Yeah, that's where my assumption came from. That's why I was interested in. Yeah, well, they're the ones who were, who want, wanted to get away from that, mm. you know, for whatever reason, usually financial, because money in Russia is a big problem and always was. You know, we we now have a situation where there are certain people who've got almost every, all the wealth, and and everyone else is really quite poor, um, which is the modern world, of course, isn't it? Under communism. It still happened a bit, but it was nowhere near as much because the system didn't allow it officially, whereas the system does now. What was it? <coughs> you were in your late 20s when you were going to Russia. Yeah, I had what my 29th birthday during the competition. Wow. Yeah. What was it? What was it like traveling? What was it like going in into Russia at that time and coming out again? You know, well, I'm interested in the, the transition between being in the UK and then going to Russia and what the differences were like then. Well, do you recall? I think think in order to answer the question, we have to remember what it must be like for non-Europeans to come to Britain if they're coming to work. I think there's there's a a lot of obstacles, which, of course, we don't notice. We just sail straight in with the British passport, as the Americans do with an American passport. And as I'm sure you know, these days, getting into the US... Uh, and working is a very difficult process. In the 1980s, to go to the Soviet Union, you had to apply for a visa uh, a few days before. 
You didn't have to go to the embassy. The passport would come back, usually efficiently, um, as long as all the details were right. And the details had to be adhered to. They had to know exactly where you were going and what you were doing and why you were there. Uh, if you went on your own steam, you had to report to a police station every day. If you didn't, if you went as a guest of what was called Goss Concert, the state concert agency, then that wasn't necessary because they did that for you. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't the most efficient country by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> it was fraught with difficulties, but it wasn't really a major problem as long as you were prepared no. to be patient. Uh, I'm so so that challenges my assumption as well because my assumption has always been that because it was the Soviet Union that it was impossible to get into or that you had. <laughs> uh, but but actually it was it sounds as though it was paperwork yeah. and there was a lot of yeah paperwork. that's exactly right yeah. yeah. And, and, of course, bureaucracy always tends to be inefficient. So there was a... I, I actually honestly think that that may well be the biggest reason for what appeared to be deprivation, like the queuing for food. I think it's inefficiency rather than anything deliberate. I think so. My, my impression of that was, was created by comparing trying to get, in, uh, get into a grocer's shop in Moscow with trying to get into one in the provinces where the, the food was grown very close by. That was no problem. It's when it has to be distributed mm. to the big cities. That's where they had their biggest issue. And I, I mean, the people in Russia have told me that, that, that Soviet, um, the Soviet system was blighted by distribution problems, partly because it was so inefficient in itself and very bureaucratic, but also partly because of the distances. Mm. Because we, we cannot, I, I cannot get my head around how big it is. No, it is it, such it, a gigantic yeah. country, and for it all to be operated by one government, at the western end of it is a bit optimistic. <laughs> you know, when you consider the problems people have in Belfast. Yes, sorry, I realise you're making government. a serious point. <laughs> you made me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, yeah, yeah it, uh, it, it is, yeah. it's kind of both. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, can you imagine the psychological um, impact of living in the eastern part of Russia? Uh, or indeed, if the rest of Europe was governed by a small government in Belfast. Yes, uh, yes, indeed. That's, that's yes, they really would feel a little bit like, like what the hell's going on? They're, they're <laughs> on another island. Yes. Um, did you live in? Did you live in Soviet Russia? Then? No, no, I never lived. I just stayed many times in hotels. Okay. And Soviet hotels, you could write a book on. <laughs> yes, I, I remember staying in a Soviet-influenced hotel. I think in Vilnius when I started working. Um, well, that was the uh, Soviet. Was it? Yeah. Um, and I remember running myself a bath, and the water was rusty yellow. Yeah. And I didn't run it for very long and thought, I don't know that I'm going to... Yeah, I'm yeah. not going to have a bath tonight. <laughs> well, yeah, a lot of these things you can't explain. I mean, why, why rusty yellow was was a feature of the Soviet system, I don't know. What, what the, the so it's a familiar thing. Oh, yeah. It was particularly the case in, in Leningrad, because uh, partly because Leningrad was built on a swamp. So actually getting pure water was very hard for them. But basically they didn't bother... <laughs> Okay, so it's actually not as unusual as I thought it was. No, no, no. Um, I am interested in knowing. I just need to. We were talking about interpretation. Yeah, we were. And we went off on one. Uh, No, you, you, you were telling me about Richter and how um, you'd sat down at an awful piano. Yeah. And then I asked you about what he did. Well, he played the day before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I am interested in knowing if who, when you were in your teenage years. Who were the instrumentalists who were having the most impact on you? 
in terms of profile. Well, he was one of them, actually. Yeah. Only by coincidence, really, because I'd no, I'd no notion of ever being involved in Russia itself at that point. I was like, like most of us, I was influenced by Western propaganda as to what a hellhole it was. Uh, but Richter was definitely up there as, as possibly my main pianistic influence. The thing about him, which is where we started from, is that he had this immense imagination for, for sound in particular, I believe, anyway. And he had an immense knowledge of non-piano non music, in particular opera and chamber music, orchestral, basically every, and actually other arts as well. He was just an extraordinarily knowledgeable man. Which, of course, it made him an exception, but actually the whole Soviet audience was an exception because the education was so good, you know. Um, but he was up there with the most imaginative in history, I think, combined with a profound technical skill and amazing training, which is another Soviet thing. Did you work together? Did you... Oh, no, no, no. I, I, did I, meet, I did meet him a few times, but we never actually played together, no. He was, he was very nice, by the way, actually. He was, he was kind of shy, but very pleasant. About me, anyway. <laughs> what, to your face? Yeah, oh, yeah. Right. Well, I didn't hear any, never, anything. Never mind back. <laughs> no, there was none of that. Was none. That's the last thing he would have done. No. I mean, you know, there are many, many people who would, but he, he was not one of those. Uh, I'm interested in uh, the idea of when you see, you, you speak very warmly of him, um, and almost like he's almost like he's a mentor, although he yeah, well, wasn't. Yeah, in a way, yes. um, When you are in the company of other pianists who assume that sort of status, are you, as, a, as another pianist, wanting to find out from them what... Yeah, are you wanting to get tips, you want to get ideas, what, what is it that you want? Well, Do you see what I mean? I certainly did when I was younger. I'm a little bit old to be getting tips from... Yeah, no, I'm not <laughs> suggesting that you need any, but, but do you see what I mean? That, that, that I probably do need them. It's just that you don't think of it when you're, when you're, when you're dosage, you know. At um, the time, were, uh, you, were you wanting stuff from him? No. Or I just that you, you in were inspired by his playing? And yes, and I didn't know why. I, 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 I analysed exactly why at that stage. I just, did, I just was, was always... I was always gripped by what he did. Even when I didn't agree with it, which was often actually thinking about it. I mean, you know, his approach to the, the appassionata was beyond reason, really. Um, and yet it was incredibly gripping. There's a big difference between agreeing with it and being gripped by it. What do you mean know? it was beyond reason? Well, his interpretation of the appassionata was, was, was pretty um, cavalier. <laughs> It was very Russian. Was it was it personality led? Yes, it was. Right, okay. but it wasn't. It wasn't about contradiction. Just to make sure I'm not contradicting yeah, yeah, myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't contradict the school. What he did was was adopt or adapt. No, adopt will do. Adopt um, extremes. Whatever Beethoven said, he took it to the extreme. So that the code, for example, which is Mark Presto, it was so unbelievably superhumanly fast and yet controlled. Just in every way, it was huge, bigger than it really is, I think. Um, but then Beethoven might have disagreed with me. He might have said, "Yes, that's what I wanted. It's just that the pianos are no good when I was alive." <laughs> you know? But now you can do it, so go for it. How did you come to to stand in for Daniel Barenboim? Oh, well, <laughs> suddenly the energy has dropped from the conversation. That, yes, because I I read somewhere that 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 one of your most challenging moments was. We're yes. standing here for Daniel Barenboim. Well, that was from Wilson's yeah. thing, yeah. Meet the artist. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I, what it was 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 he he decided to tour the first book of Preludes and Fugues of Bach, um, which of course very few people play, and it coincided with me having made it a project over the previous year or so to to really explore those in a way that I hadn't so much when I was younger. In fact, some of them I've never played at all. Uh, and it was at the beginning of, of the public exposure of my project and this desperate um, uh, request came through to any pianist who was around who played them who could go to Budapest, to the festival in Budapest and stand in for him at two days' notice. I think it was two days or something like that. And I said, yes, I'll do that, which is probably something I shouldn't have done, really. <laughs> well, Did it, it not go well? <laughs> Nothing. I mean, it must have gone well. No, well, no, I mean, no, it must no. have it happened. Well, nothing, okay. nothing went wrong. Nobody booed, yeah. No, I, I, don't, I don't honestly know whether it went well or not. It, it probably didn't. I mean, most of the performances I give, I come up thinking, oh, that wasn't very good. It's almost every time. I think the last time I didn't do that was in 1988. So, you know, it's... it's Are you being self-effacing or is it... No, no, it's true. Case? There's always something you'd rather have done better. Always. It, and it will never be any different. Um... I mean, you've got to keep, to keep that in perspective, of course, because otherwise you'd never play anything. So it's, a, it's always absolutely a matter of degree. And Bach is very hard. You know, <laughs> yeah. most, maybe even harder. But Bach is, you know, it, it's, it's the ultimate Everest, really, or one of them. It's the K2. Right. You know. Okay. <clears throat> and no, I wasn't happy with it at all. But I, I, I have no idea whether they were or not. They may have been. I have no idea how Barenboim would have played it. My impression is that his approach would have been much more epic than mine, because Barenboim's idea of almost all music like that, particularly Germanic music, is always very much that <clears throat> it, it, it's, it's a profound statement. And, of course, some of them pieces are, but some of them have got scherzando in them as well. I do find that Bach is treated as if every note is an epic. Yes. And it's yes. not. Actually, it's, it, I mean, in fact, no composer really is, <clears throat> and not at least until the 20th century. Um, I, I think there's there's always a, a, a side to these great greatest composers that is jokey and light-hearted. So I, my performance would have probably been quicker, generally, and um, hopefully with more mood swings. But Daniel's approach to this music is—I mean—it's so professional and so convincing. That's probably the answer to it. I couldn't make it as epic as he can, so I use the other approach. As a performer, is there a is there a pressure about? So, as an audience member, I look at that and think, uh, you were standing in for Baron Boyne at, at the beginning of the project, and that must have been stressful because you were standing because the audience had paid to go and see Baron Boyne. Yeah. Um, and it was full. And, and it was, was a huge okay. concert. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, so there's quite a lot of pressure. And then there's um, Andras Schiff, who's Hungarian. Oh, God. Oh, who plays uh, Bard all the time, of course, oh. in a way that <laughs> is an, a completely different approach, you know. So totally I, in that moment, are you sort of uh, lining yourself up with those other pianists? And is there an element of imposter syndrome? Oh, definitely, yes. Um, okay. I mean, almost every time I go on stage, I feel, you know, I feel like there's an, there's an invisible hand that has yet to come, but that might come as any second and say, you're a fraud. Really? Yeah. Still? Now, that sounds like some kind of pose, but it isn't, because I think probably we all... N nobody can ever expect, first of all, perfection, and never mind perfection, you can't expect to play it as well as you could on, when you were on your uh, uh, best form whilst practising. 
because it's not going to happen because of the pressure. And you can't really emulate that feeling in private. So there's always going to be something that you're not happy about. And there may even be something that you're not happy about if you were to hear it back that you thought was fine, <laughs> you know, particularly tempo. Um, and, I, you know, one has to balance that with, the, 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 hopefully, the certain knowledge that you do have something to offer. <laughs> because otherwise you've no right out there at all, you know, to be out there, I should say. And, yeah, that hand that might just come one day and say you're a fraud is perhaps the... The, the great leveller you know I, I've often wondered whether actually imposter syndrome in, in whatever um, in whatever scenario it crops up whether it's playing an instrument or, or in any other line of work um, it's also a motivating factor it's a, it's a source of motivation isn't it yes absolutely yes and every performance that can therefore be improved upon mm. and the moment you think that it can't be is probably when you should retire mm. and I mean that seriously because if you can't find anything more to say about it, then it's time for someone else, you know. But you do have, first of all, you have people's responses. Sometimes in direct contrast to critics' responses. It's a very interesting syndrome because what the, an audience response is vari variable, depending on the repertoire, depending on how you've communicated with them or successfully or otherwise done so. And then you get a review that contradicts what they thought. Which is an interesting experience, because I can't quite imagine how it happens. Unless the critic is feeling, particularly if it's a bad review, if the critic is feeling that the audience was wrong and he's going to show them, that sometimes could, could happen. Are reviews useful for you? How are they useful Well, for some you? of them are, yes. So, uh, it varies. Have they help you, your playing? It really does, does vary. But I was going to say, the, the opposite can happen, which is when uh, the audience response is less than enthusiastic which could simply be because maybe they, it's the kind of audience that doesn't show feelings very, very easily, like they do in certain countries. Or um, it could be because uh, the hall's not got a very nice acoustic, or it's a small audience which doesn't help their applause at all because they feel very self-conscious in doing it. Or you've failed. You've failed to communicate with them. However well you've actually played, you've just not put it across very well. And then there's a rave review. It's one of the more interesting aspects, perhaps slightly more pleasant one. <laughs> but, you know, it does happen, and, um, well, everything happens. At some point, everything happens. You know. I'm conscious that we should, we should talk about the album. <laughs> well, um, well, we can uh, if you like, yes. We ought to. The thing that I you just asked me a question there. So Didn't, I don't know what the question was now, but you did, I, did, I, I interrupted you. I asked you about... Um, Critics. But oh yeah, how how are how are critics' reviews useful for you? Well, if the critic is a decent person, right, respectful and says something critical, I learn a lot from it. And some of them are. Some of them aren't. Some of them are have got a personal axe to grind, and some of them get right up my nostrils because of the whinging, whining, baloney that they come out with. Um, and some of them respond to fame so that a really famous artist can get away with murder. Some of them are see through it, which is where I'd like to, I'd, I'd like to be reviewed by those people. <laughs> right. you know. Do we still need them? Can we, do, can we do without them? I mean, you know, the mainstream press is saying that we can do well, without them, which is why they're not funding them, or why they're, why they're yes. pulling them. I'm wondering whether... Well, whether in, in, the way, in the same way that politics needs need, need political journalists, 
Yeah, I yeah, think okay, they probably do. Okay. Um, and the more we, the more the arts are talked about, uh, the more people will be aware of their existence. And we have a problem with that. They don't know that they exist in a, in a lot of places, a lot of cases, I should say. It'd be interesting to ask around this bar how many people go to concerts or art galleries or plays or whatever it is. I'm not going to do that. I don't know that. No, I'm it's probably time, best that you don't. Um, but you'd, uh, you'd probably be depressed by the answer. Yeah. Do you think that people are talking about the arts more? No. I think they're talking about them less. It, it would be nice to think that the internet's made a difference, but the fact that the, 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 the information is on the internet doesn't mean to say people are going to listen to it or, or look at it. Uh, one hopes for the best. That's all you can do. The number of people who don't know where Radio 3 is on their radio dial or button, whatever it is these days, is it's staggering. What has contributed to that reduction in conversation, do you think? A lack of education, more than anything. People will... I've heard people contradict that and say it's got nothing to do with education. I don't understand why it's not. And, I mean, I, you know, never mind the theory of it. Where there is a very strong musical education, as there was in the Soviet Union, the strongest in history, and is now in China people's awareness of music is obviously far greater and of the arts generally audiences are huge and actually there's still an, a, an aftermath of the Soviet system in Russia so the audience is still huge there but it's beginning to be watered down where there is no accent on well actually no accent on education in any form except teaching people um, subjects that they might make a living from um, the audience figures are incredibly difficult to keep up and they keep them up for example in the US they keep them up through subscription series um, tapping into their perhaps ability to be snobbish um, it's an aspirational art form indeed yes, yeah. yes. Uh, and massive amounts of expensive marketing uh, the My assumption about, about uh, the art forming in China, for example, and this is a very broad statement, is that there is something aspirational about assuming the Western tradition. Hmm. Oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. Quite what, why, what's motivating that at the top end, I'm not sure. But the result is that school kids in China generally know, dare I say it, uh, with obvious exceptions, obvious oases in the UK, those kids know more about Western classical music than our kids do. And what they know about Chinese music is something I'd, I've never really got to the bottom of. I'm not sure that they take much notice of that, really. Maybe they do, but I, I'm not really sure. But their, their awareness of the great classics from Europe is approaching the best in the world now. Why the respect for music education in Russia, then? Where um, does that come from? What, what, where are the roots for that, do you think? Well, in, in Soviet Russia, um, education in almost all its forms was of paramount importance. I think it was one of the, uh, the great ideals of communism, was to bring up the, the level of awareness. Of course, it was propaganda as well. You know, they did hide reality from them as well, to a very large degree, but that was contemporary political activities that they were shielded from. And they were, of course, told that Russia was the greatest country in the world and that the system had made it even greater and the, all that stuff. But when it came to awareness of, of languages or science or medicine and music, ballet, 
athletics. It just goes on and on and on. I mean, they, they, their training was just incredible. Uh, and it's not really a Russian thing, it's a Soviet thing. Some people say things like, oh yes, well of course their performance of Rachmaninoff etudes is bound to be ahead of the game because it's in their blood. Well, that, that's baloney. It isn't in their blood at all. No, no. It, it's been made into their blood by training. And if they stop training, which they basically... They've basically undermined it, put it that way. The etudes he wrote when he was still in Russia... Or just when yes. he went right. Okay. It was just before yeah, he so left. So it is truly sort of Russian right man and off. Oh yeah, very yeah, much so. Okay. And it's very. It's, well, it was only an arbitrary example anyway. No, no, but no, yeah, but you, you know the, the. I've always wondered, and it was easier to ask you than it was to go through Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Frankly, oh, well, you're here. Okay, well, <laughs> Donohopedia. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> go ahead. Rachmaninoff wrote Opus Thirty Nine, um, Etudes Book Two. Uh, Etude Tableau, that is, bef- just before he left Russia. And his next opus, Opus 40, is the fourth piano concerto 15 years later. And in between the two, he became a, oh, he was making a living in the West as a, as a performer. So it's the end of his Russian period, exactly. Uh, and that 15-year gap is a massive, has a massive effect on his output, as I'm sure you know. The last five opuses mm. are like a different composer. And they were written in the US. Um, yeah, uh, where were we? Um, education, people talking about yes. arts. Yes, well, for whatever reason, I mean, that was actually your question, what is the reason? I think the Soviet system believed in, in it in a very big way. It may be that they wanted to distract the population from reality to some degree, which is what the Nazis did with, with um, German music as well. It may also, on the other hand, be that, they, that their history in the 19th century in particular uh, had this dreadful um, feeling of, of everything being owned and run and ruled by a very small group and everyone else basically without education <clears throat> people not being able to read or write just used as, as animals which is why they had a revolution you know the fact that the revolution didn't work properly doesn't mean that there wasn't a good reason to have it because there really was I'm sounding like a communist don't I <laughs> Not at all. No, 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 it would be wrong of me to judge. I'll leave it. I'll leave it to other people to judge. No, but you know, at the end of it all, when I first went, it was it was only uh, how, how many years before? It was nine years before the fall of the system. During those nine years, I got to know it pretty well, but only through the big cities. It was it was after the the second revolution I started to go to the provinces. But Leningrad and Moscow, were, I was I was there so often I I, I lost count. Um, and the audience level of understanding of what you were doing was the greatest ever, for sure, in both cities. They, they are rival cities in many ways, but ba- basically they were equal. The, the, the education level was so high, and the, the warmth and the understanding. And, and in particular, they understood when something didn't work as to why it did, why it happened. They would be like, oh, yes. Oh, so they were fully engaged? Yes. Fully engaged, yes. right. Absolutely, and many many of them were performers themselves. The Western tradition for performers is not to go to anyone else's concert unless they're famous. Mm. But in Russia, they were at everything. It didn't matter what was on because it was cheap. It was dirt yeah, cheap and also go. the Western concert concert tradition is that if if somebody comes up to a performer after a concert and says, "Well, actually, you know, this didn't work, and this is why," then that that would be seen as an affront. Yes. But actually, the way you talk about it, it's it's uh, uh, almost like a collaborative experience. Well, yes. It did feel that way. 
And not many people were critical in a negative way. But when they were, it was always quite interesting. Because they, they always compared your approach to the Soviet approach and, and how different it was. So I, you were a curiosity. Well, I, yes, there was yeah, that. Okay. I was also a competition winner. Right. And it was, I mean, it, it cushions you against what it must be like for most people. But I'm, I, I've got to be aware of that. It's a little bit like, you know, my supposedly glamorous life of travelling all over the world all the time. Of course it's easy because I'm cushioned. Right. And I know that if I went on my own without anybody putting it all in place for me, it'd be a lot more difficult. <laughs> and I'd be ripped off a lot more. Do you not book flights? Well, I, actually, I've started to travel. I don't, it's, it's, and that's the easy bit. <laughs> no, the hard bit's choosing a hotel. Yes, and yes. Not, and not being ripped off yes. by people who prey, who prey on tourists, which we never get because the hotel's chosen for us, usually well. Yeah. And when I arrive at the airport, I'm met. And I'm taken everywhere, and I'm showed the best restaurants. You know, all these. Yeah, I always like that on press trips. I, th- I find that if I if I go to cities on my own, then like you, I sort of feel all at sea. Yeah. But as long as I'm greeted by somebody at the airport, I just yeah. feel very very special. Yes. Even though I and don't you really think I am. No, uh, no, but I mean, it's true. You are. Yeah. Yes. If, if they if they regard you as special for whatever reason that is, then you are. And you know, they, and it they, makes a difference. I think because it, it actually does. means that you you will you feel treated. Yeah. Uh, and therefore you give of your best. And you're not preyed upon. That's the main yes. thing. You know. But all the downside of it, of course, is that you don't see reality. No. Uh, I'm aware but when you I... You have some nice meals. <laughs> yes, wonderful. Yeah, with lots of nice company. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. they listen to everything you say. <laughs> and nod and smile. Nobody interrupts. You know, it's, it's wonderful. But um, the, the, the thing about, about um, uh, that is that the downside of it is that you don't see the reality of the society, that you are, as I have just been, saying many good things about it. I still believe it's true, but I've got to be careful I don't get slightly blinkered about Soviet society. When it came to the arts, I'm not blinkered. There's, there's no question that they, their knowledge was greater than anywhere else, uh, and their welcome was greater than anywhere else, a lot by a long way, partly because of the competition, of course. You know. I mean, one has to be aware. The other thing you have to be aware of in the Soviet history is that in order to get into the competition as a member of the audience, you had to be well connected because it was so much in demand. Everybody wanted to go. So if you were well connected, you were almost certainly a party member. And yet they were so welcoming of the West, welcoming of Western artists. Just unbelievable. Many contradictions, and I still don't Bizarre. really know quite what the reality is. Uh, I've, I'm, I need to grab the CD because I need to remind myself of my yeah, sure. listening research which is, uh, so I want to tell you what I thought about what I heard. I don't mean about your playing, because that would seem really, really rude of me. Well, you can if you like. Um, That's maybe fine. We'll come under, well, we'll, the thing that struck me first of all was that the third movement of the number six sonata is epic. It's an epic set of variations. Mm. It seems to go on forever. Yeah. I mean, I realise it only goes on for 15 minutes, but... It's huge, yeah. It is a, it's a big thing with... very rarely played K284 the first movement is quite often played the second and third movements are ignored because the second movement of course is an intermezzo really it's not called that it's a polonaise but it feels like an intermezzo between two huge movements 
and the third being the, the, the hugest. Um, and it's technically very hard. It, it's actually like Mozart's Hammer Club here. It's, it's one of the most awkward pieces that I've ever played. I was struck by how there are loads of, loads of, presumably four, different sets of articulation in the fingers yes. in the third movement. I heard pizzicato in the bass, not pizzicato, I heard staccato in the bass, uh, legato in the right hand, mm. and, and something else in between. There were, there were four distinct voices, and that struck me as very difficult. Have I imagined that? It's just based no, on I'm, this. I'm, I'm just trying to remember the bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, one tries to respond to what the composer wrote, and, and yes, I do think in colours, and I think in, in like Britton did when he played the Schubert leader with Peter Pears. There was this degree of, of, in fact, I think he even wrote it down, a sort of orchestration in the mm. piano accompaniment, where he thinks of an oboe rather than just a, a piano playing the melody line, and things like that. Horn, the horn or the cellos or you know, whatever it is. And that's certainly the case in the other two sonatas because when I hear, and that's partly to do with the material I think um, certainly in the adagios I hear it as an orchestral piece yeah. I hear it almost as a concerto Yeah, Or may, maybe an opera aria yeah. sometimes. I mean they do vary of course but well, I, it almost sounds like a cliche because I've said it so often that for everything particularly at that time all music was a dance or a song or a chorale and anybody who thinks it's anything other than that has just got no imagination mm. that's, that's the key to Mozart is the song or dance particularly the song the aria from the operas well, that, that style the breathing style the, the rhythmic style of a singer or a wind player yeah. uh, number six was originally improvised and then written down later in his life is that right? That's you may well be right. I don't okay, know the I've answer. To okay. Yeah, it could be. It, it sounds like even even stretching Mozart's genius to do that, but it is possible. Yeah. And of course, when when composers improvise something and then write it down later, there's no guarantee. It's no, exactly. That, that's what <laughs> I'm know. interested in. I, I like the idea that mm. it was originally improvised, and then actually, what we're hearing is something that had been potentially mm. written down ten years after the fact. Yeah. Do, you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, of course. Because, yeah. because then it becomes phenomenally difficult to date yes quite absolutely um, and, and there are Chinese whispers and, and legends and so on that build up around these, these events but I mean he, he certainly had the ability to do that the only thing is that sonata is very strictly uh, formalised it's a very strict fir uh, first movement form and the variations are very very faithful to the theme uh, and, and it's, it's one of the most one of the most perhaps calculated pieces that I can think of, of his in the, in the sense that his variations were always like that, but this, this set of variations on one other, they're the only ones to appear in the sonatas there's, there's another one in the Turkish um, The other thing I heard bear with, because I want to make sure that I get this right, I feel a duty to get it right Yeah. Yeah, so the Adagio in number 17 
that particular movement. The most obvious parallel with that movement is the slow movement of K4491 piano concerto. Which is number what? Number 24 in C minor. Uh-huh. Which it's yeah, the one that, that, that has the most, um, the, the most use of woodwind in any concerto I think that's ever been written. It's basically a, a piano and woodwind thing mm. with strings occasionally, you know. Uh, it's very, very hard for the orchestra for that reason, but because of the intonation and so on. But the, the style of the music and actually the appearance of the episodes in the in the slow movement form, two episodes, one in C minor, one, but the, the basic movement's in E flat major. Uh, first episode C minor, second episode A flat major, and the, the themes come come back in exactly the same way mm. as they do in this this slow movement you're talking about. Uh, it's in the same key. It's got every. It's, it's almost like a, a rehearsal for it, except that it's the other way around. It was written after the concerto, um, and it's incredibly beautiful. And on, I suppose the emotional um, impact of it is on many different layers. Because when something's incredibly beautiful and in a major key, when it's by Mozart, it can also be very sad underneath. Mm. One of the reasons we should leave it alone and actually just play what he wrote, because you can't communicate all that multi-layered emotion if you're going to start interpreting it, you know, and adding your your uh, Ravellian rubato. direction do you have from him in score? Uh, well, there's quite a lot, but, but of course there are many different editions, so you never quite know how, how much detail he provided, and, unless you go to the, to the manuscript, which I didn't do. Because um, I don't care that much. My response to, to what, what I can see what he did right, because I'm making the assumption that the editors haven't changed it, they just add to it, which is fine. <laughs> you know. And I choose... I choose things from the editors that I um, that I believe in, or otherwise, I don't do it. Things like subtle tempo changes within a rondo or a slow movement, very important in Mozart and Beethoven, um, Haydn, I guess as well. I mean, it's all, it's all the same, or Schubert. You know. There's a lot, a lot of that, that sort of thing that isn't written in there. And it, mu- it has to be done, but it has to be done in a way that the listener doesn't notice. Like Fort Wangler's Schubert, great performance of Schubert's Ninth Symphony, where it does change tempo constantly, but you don't actually realise it. It just makes it sound good. <laughs> it just works. The slight subtle changes work. Uh, that's what I. Are they subtle time shifts? Then? Yes. Okay. Yes, you, you've got to be very, very analytical and objective to actually notice him doing it. In other words, it's not an interpretative point yeah. with an arrow pointing at it. This is what I do with Schubert 9. You know, it's actually very, very subtle and very um, organic. And I, it's a good word, organic, isn't it? Most people <laughs> don't know what you're well, talking about. Very well chosen <laughs> word. Very, uh, very but good. yes, I mean, that, that movement is a particularly special one, I think. That sonata is, you know, it's got a... A very simple first movement. It has a very uh, almost rustic scherzando finale, and this really very long slow movement that's unbelievably beautiful. There's no explanation for it. 
you know, there's, there's no historical reason why any of those three should be there. He just wrote it that way. <laughs> we are we are absolutely talking about the same movie, but I hear I hear something completely different, well, which yeah, is that, which is great. That's, that's, the, great that's the wonderful thing about. Yeah. About the album, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely, and, and maybe next time I played it, if you heard it in concert, you would get a different response from it, because it would be different to the recording. I heard Brookner Seven a couple of nights ago uh, yeah. at the festival hall, and I love the opening of Brookner Seven, but I've always struggled to understand the entire symphony. Yeah, uh, I agree, and I because I don't, I just think I don't know, <laughs> I no, don't no. know what to think. Well, it's the finale uh, that's the problem, isn't it? Uh, the finale is a is bit it? like it's, like it's like a kind of medley of tunes. <laughs> 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 you know. Whereas the other three are not like that. They're incredibly, wonderfully organic, to use that know, word again. I don't know where we're... I, I, my problem with Brooklyn Seven has always been I don't really know where we're going and I don't really know when we've arrived because I don't know, yeah. I don't know where, we, where we were heading towards. Uh, but it took me 12 years to... to that particular performance was particularly good. And that was with... Is it Robin Ticciati? Oh, yeah. Did who he do you, that? Yeah. Yes, I've played him. Um, Not often, but yeah, we did uh, do some stuff. He's very wiry. Yeah. Very wiry and sort of... Um, I thought he was amazing to watch. He's anyway. a very fine conductor, and, and that's, of course, that, that symphony, and, or any Bruckner, really, but that particular one, um, really sorts the men out from the boys, doesn't it? I didn't didn't wish to be too sexist with that. No, remark, that's you know perfectly I mean. fine. I understand. It's, just, it's a turn of phrase. Um, <laughs> but Bruckner Seven, yes, he did, I mean Bruckner did have a tendency to make a medley out of the out of his finales, which is why Number Nine is so great because he didn't do a finale. <laughs> I don't know Nine at all. Oh right, well I don't know Nine. It at is all. for me the greatest one, and it's only got three movements because he died before he finished the finale. Right. So he didn't get the chance to screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> So he just finishes with this beautiful slow movement in the same way as Schubert's Eight does, you know, with the the unfinished symphony. It just finishes with this. Oh no, I find the unfinished symphony infuriating. Oh, because it's okay. because it's tuneful and because people love it because it's tuneful and it's accessible. And, and yeah, I but just... what other people's responses to it shouldn't affect? I know, I know, yeah. I know, but I get quite I get quite worked up about that. Um, but that's my stuff to deal with. I'm conscious that I, there's one other thing to ask you about. Well, there's two other things to ask okay. you about this, which is why why did you select these? Well, um, we recorded them all before we selected which ones oh, to put on the CD. So there are more to come. Oh, there's, there's, I mean, that's it's the first implicit. Of, it's implicit. In yeah, the, in it's the, the, the first of uh, first of four volumes. Oh, uh, a, a release dates to be announced. I mean, I'm not sure. Not, they're not edited yet, but um, probably over the next two years, all four will be out. Uh, and what did you record on? Uh, Bechstein at Birmingham Conservatory in the brand new concert hall oh. they have. Well, I'm, I'm vice president there, you see, so oh. I was able to have access to it. I should and have known that, really. But oh, don't worry, it's... Uh, okay. well, there's no reason why I should know. Well, that. no, I ought to know those, <laughs> I ought to know those things. Well, uh, you know, it, it, um, vice president... Uh, to, I mean, Simon Rottle is the president... I'm his president of Vice, <laughs> and you know, <laughs> and, and I mean Simon was involved in a big way when he when he lived in in Birmingham, or worked as principal conductor in Birmingham. Uh, but of course, he went to Berlin then, which means that his involvement was limited by distance, uh, and so I've become more involved as a result of that, really. And um, that's one of the things that I, <laughs> one of the perks was was access to the concert hall and this wonderful piano. It's a it's a brand new Bechstein and it's perfect for this music. And how so? You've recorded essentially three hours of material. No, it's over three, three and a half yeah. hours of material. Yeah, about that, yeah. um, how long did that take? 
Uh, don't say three and a half hours. <laughs> <laughs> Always only. Uh, two days in January, two days in March, and two days in July. Last year? Yes. How did you maintain the same consistency in three, in three different time periods? Well, is there any reason to assume I did? <laughs> Well, let's assume, one, that, <laughs> let's assume that you did. One tries very hard. <laughs> well, I mean, was, it, was, that, was that challenging? Yeah, it was challenging. Part I don't of know, it. I mean, I you, know, you know, the piano no. sounds different in different seasons, right? Uh, which is one of the issues. And as it happens, the, um, uh, the second session uh, was March the 1st on the 2nd, which in the Midlands was a deluge of snow. And it was, it was almost um, a, a, a possibility we'd have to cancel it because of that. It was an unbelievable deluge on March the 5th. Um, and uh, I did make it by walking to the station, uh, which is a very long way with a suitcase full of Mozart's course, uh, and all that sort of thing. Uh, and the producer and, and uh, engineer made it too, but they had the skin of their teeth. So we did it. Um, but the piano, of course, was different because of the climate. You know. Um, the first se- session having been in January it wasn't so different yet but when it came to July and it was hot you know you're, you're dealing with a different instrument almost are, any, to... are any of the snowbound recordings on this CD because you've just told a really intrepid story you see so you're battling um, against the you know, I can't I remember let me just check um, yes the last one. <laughs> the last one. So the last one, the sonata number two. Yeah. That was Snowbound. Yeah. Right, I'll listen intently. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, I... the, that's, yeah, I mean, you know, one thing that's to say about Mozart piano music, which is quite, I, I found it arrestingly interesting myself when I first thought about it, which wasn't that many years ago. The early symphonies and early concertos are incredibly early in his life. He only lived for 35 mm-hmm. years, and I think he was writing stuff like that when he was six. But the first sonata is K279. It's already mature. You know, for example, well after the... As it just so happened, on the radio yesterday on Radio 3, there was a performance of Mozart's bassoon concerto, which is a piece I know really well because I knew a lot of bassoonists when I was at school, and I accompanied it a lot, and I've conducted it too. And it's an absolutely glorious piece. I mean, how the, you know... That the bassoon should get <laughs> such a fantastic mel- mel- melodic inspiration as that is, is wonderful. Because you, know, you wouldn't expect necessarily that they would. But Weber and Mozart and one or two others produced from really wonderful results, particularly Mozart. K191 it is. So well before so the quite first early. sonata. Yeah. Quite early. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, um, uh, I was going to can't remember. I, mean, I almost learned to play the bassoon myself because I was attracted by the instrument very much when I was young. Uh, and just, just hearing that inspiration yesterday, for the first time for a long time, I, I was reminded just how in, incredibly inspired it is. Your um, anecdote reminds that's me... That's all of, three movements, by the way. Your anecdote reminds me of something I read on Facebook that you posted about how you were listening to a performance of something on Classic FM uh, in the car and you were getting quite critical about it in the car. Oh, yes. And then you discovered that you'd been but playing it. <laughs> Yes, and I quite what a horrible I quite, moment. Well, yeah, and I quite <laughs> believe in making that public. Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah. And I know most most people would not do it. They'd feel vulnerable to, to admit to something like that. But I think it's important to be vulnerable. Well, it's quite normal. Well, yeah, yeah. I think it is quite yeah. normal, but it's quite normal Maybe to cover it up as well. Yeah, <laughs> that seems a shame because I'm, I'm not expecting 
Actually, I, I much prefer a performance where there's a bit of jeopardy in it, uh, yeah. because then I appreciate what has contributed to it being a mm. success at the end. Uh, I think it's... Uh, yeah. I'm all for vulnerability, really. It's far more normal. Well, yeah, that's what the arts are about. Yeah. Revealing your vulnerability, and, and the, the actual compositions do that too. You know, it's a very important part of what we do, and we, we do tend to think that we have to be bulletproof. But you can't be. You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, available on Spotify, iTunes and Audioboom. To get in touch, tweet at Thoroughly Good, leave a message on the Thoroughly Good Facebook page, or email john.jacob at thoroughlygood.me.